you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere fun. $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I used to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent. Five yeah, right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, let's watch full length. Let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs> 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh, right. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Looking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday noon to two. On the freeway. Good I am I'm a total fraud. Laurie Stern, voice is absolutely right. I am a petty, rebellious, and adolescent. And I will cut the. Henry. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your 
Chief Nurse Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Let's watch full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. Hi. Let's watch This is Carl. Movie I'm Mike's friend. On YouTube I wrote Michael this song. Spiegelman. My turn-ons are sad Or we must find the next whiskey bar. Or if we don't find the next whiskey bar, I tell you we must die. I tell you we must die. I tell you, I tell you, I tell you we must die.
Waist Deep in the Big Muddy is a thinly veiled anti-Vietnam War song. And Pete had been blacklisted from television for, for some time. He was going on the Smothers Brothers variety show, and he intended to play that song. So they said, the censor said, you absolutely cannot. So they canceled him from that night's performance. To the credit of, I believe it was Tom Smothers, he insisted that Pete be on the show. And it's an incendiary performance, you know, and if one four-minute song uh, could be given credit for stopping the Vietnam War, it would be that performance of Pete's. It was back in 1942, was the member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana by the light of the moon. The captain told us to fold the river. It's how it all begun. We were waist deep in the big money, and the big fool said to push on. Well, the sergeant said, sir, are you sure? Is this the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on. I boarded this river about a mile from this place. Just keep on slugging and we'll soon be on dry land. We were raised deep in the big muddy and the big fool said to push on. Now the sergeant said, sir, with all this equipment, no man will be able to swim. Now sergeant, don't be such a nervous Nelly, the captain said to him. Oh, we need a little determination, man. Follow me, I'll lead on. We were neck deep in big money. Big goose and to push on. Push on. 
the big muddy and the fool said to push on. song says when you can't see your way and you feel that you've gone astray doing all you know how to do remember God has not forgotten you hold your head up and be true to him for he'll open doors for you
and good morning. Labor and Love Show. You're listening to The B and you're listening to Mutiny Radio. Coming to you from 2781 21st Street, our studio in the center of the Mission District in San Francisco. A full community arts center right here in your midst. We've got comedy, live comedy. We've got drama. We've got video. We've got art installations. And we've got Mutiny Radio. Come on down to Mutiny and find your voice. There are open blocks so you can come right in and talk your talk. And this is Labor and Love Radio, the show where we tell you how it is, where we tell you if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, some for a dollar they didn't get. Hopefully you have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you work. You don't have that seat at the negotiating table. You're on the menu. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. <coughs> when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. <laughs> Your work makes them rich. Of course they want you to get back to work. Your labor makes them rich. Of course they want your kids stuck away in school. Your labor makes them rich and you can't be out there working if your kid's not in school. They don't care much about educating your child. Just get them out of the way <clears throat> so their parents can get back to work. And ladies and gentlemen, in all my years I've never seen such a cold-blooded proposal. The proposal is you send your kids to school. The proposal is teachers go back to work. And those kids and those teachers are at the risk of their lives. The pandemic is going crazy all over the country. The whole thing has been grossly mismanaged. And now we're going to pay the piper. As one health official said when he testified before Congress, It's going to be a dark autumn. We haven't learned, have we? Mr. Trump and his people were so much in a hurry to reopen the country. They forgot about a little something. They forgot about your life. Or they never thought of it at all. So our first song on, on our 
first set today on Labor and Love Radio was the Alabama song symbolizing those people who are thinking of their pleasure, who are going to beaches, who are going to bars, who are going to restaurants, who are out there without their masks. That song is dedicated to the young man in uh, Florida during Easter week. And he said he was just going to party and have fun, and he didn't really care if he caught the virus or not. He said, if I get it, I'll deal with it. The Alabama Song by Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill is dedicated to him. Second, we had the Pete Seeger classic, Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, a Vietnam War era song. But applicable today, they want us to get, just keep on going. Get in the big muddy waist deep and keep on going. The damn fool says to move on. And that's what your government, Mr. Trump, is telling you. Act like there's no pandemic. Go to work, send your kids to school, and die for us so we can have a healthy economy. pandemic is solved, it's going to go away? I don't think so. <laughs> the president's son-in-law or son, I believe, says that after election day, the uh, virus will disappear as if by magic. <laughs> Good luck. That's what it is. Places like Arizona, our own Southern California, Florida, Texas are on fire with a virus because they open too soon. In the case of California, Mr. Newsom caved to Southern California interests who had to get their beaches open, who had to get their bed and breakfast going, who had to get their, their people gathering. Arizona, Texas, Florida, the triumvirate who had to open. The president said open, and they said, how much and where? <laughs> I'm mixing my metaphors there, but these people are slaves to their Mr. Trump and now they're paying for it and now we're paying for it. Governor of South Dakota Christy Noem said oh yeah we've, we've got an outbreak here. We're, we've got a big rise in cases. We'll own it. We'll take it. Speaking I guess for all those people whose families were Impacted by the uh, virus. We'll take it, she said. He didn't take anything. <laughs> so, yeah, Labor and Love Radio. What do we got? We got Radio Labor for you today. 
the last of the uh, weekly radio labor shows for a while. Uh, till September, I guess they're taking a summer holiday. Um, gave you the big muddy. And the third song we played was God Will Open Doors for You. And that's dedicated to the victims. The people who are shot on the street by our police people who basically just trying to get on to the next thing in their lives. George Floyd, you open doors for us. The American left had pretty much, you know, hunkered down to fight the good fight in the election. But now you've opened doors for us. All of a sudden, all kinds of things are possible. People are painting Black Lives Matter on the street. Not much in and of itself, but a sign of something. What's happened? Has America finally awakened and looked around and seen who else is in the room besides white America? Stay tuned. We got Voices of Labor. Got a uh, talk with Francesca Fiorentini, who last week uh, last week we had an interview where she talked to uh, Bernie Sanders. So we'll see what she's got to say today. Her talk is titled. Six Ways Coronavirus Proves Bernie Sander Was Right. Can that be? Ah. The correspondent Francesca Ramsey finally admits that she's racist now. She's going to go through all her attitudes and let you know why. The Trail of Broken Treaties. This is some something that was impacted this week by a Supreme Court decision. The Trail of Broken Treaties. On this day, the labor history of the year was 1968. Let's hear that one. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day that the American Indian Movement began at a meeting in Minneapolis, Minnesota. A group of 200 Native Americans gathered together to discuss a response to the U.S. government's history of broken treaties and the devastating consequences on Native peoples. The statistics of unyielding poverty and high unemployment in Native communities were staggering. By 1970, 40% of the Native population lived in poverty. The unemployment rate was 10 times the national average. Life expectancy was only 44 years old. 
In the early 1970s, activists staged a series of occupations at Alcatraz, Wounded Knee, and at Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is built on a site in the Black Hills that is sacred to the Ocheti Sakawan, or the Great Sioux Nation. The United States government promised native rights to the land in a treaty that was broken when gold was discovered. In 1972, activists staged a Trail of Broken Treaties caravan, which ended in a six-day occupation of the Bureau of Indian Affairs offices in Washington, D.C. They issued a statement that read, quote, We seek a new American majority, a majority that is not content merely to confirm itself by superiority of numbers, but which conscience is committed toward prevailing upon the public will in ceasing wrongs and doing right. Beginning in the 1970s, the United States government began to respond to Native peoples' demands. A series of federal acts gave Native communities more control over their education and improving their health care. Lawsuits brought by tribes resulted in further economic autonomy. Yet by 2014, one in four Native people still lived in poverty. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Gene Victor Dibbs. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1894. That was the day that labor leader Eugene V. Debs was arrested for supporting the strike of Pullman Palace Car Company workers. In May, the workers who made the popular train sleeping cars had walked off the job. George Pullman had slashed the workers' wages but kept the rents in his company town steady. The striking workers called on Eugene Debs to support their strike. Debs had made a name for himself in the labor movement by successfully founding the American Railway Union. The union joined together railroad workers in an unprecedented force of solidarity across job types. In June, the union voted to boycott Pullman in support of the train car makers. As rail traffic ground to a halt, the federal government moved in to end the strike. Federal troops were called out. A federal court issued an injunction against Debs and the boycott. The basis for Debs' arrest was the claim that the boycott interfered with the delivery of the U.S. mail by the train. Debs served a six-month jail sentence in Woodstock, Illinois. His case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which decided in favor of the injunctions. When Debs was released from prison, he delivered a speech he called Liberty. In it, he declared, quote, The people have seen the money power practicing at every art of duplicity, growing more arrogant and despotic as it robbed one and crushed another building its fortification of the bones of its victims and its palaces out of the profits of its piracies. The Pullman strike and the American Railway Union were crushed and injunctions became a powerful tool against the labor movement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1918. That was the day that went down in U.S. history as the Great Trainwreck. 
The wreck occurred at Dutchman's Curve in Nashville, Tennessee. During World War I, the train industry was bustling across the nation. Trains carried troops, as well as workers, to factories to support the war effort. On that fateful morning, the Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis Railway number no. 1 train was heading east to Nashville from Memphis. One of the passengers on that train was George Scott. At 18 years old, George was traveling to the DuPont plant to make gunpowder for the war. He was just one of many workers on the train heading to work at the plant. The number four train was traveling west. Both of the trains were running late. As the number four train approached Dutchman's Curve, it received an all-clear signal from the signal tower. But then, the tower switched the signal to a red stop warning. It was too late. The train was barreling ahead on a collision course with the number one train. At 7.20 a.m., the two trains collided head-on at a rate of speed between 50 and 60 miles an hour. 101 people were killed. 171 more were injured. It was the deadliest train disaster in U.S. history. The young George Scott recalled the horrible scene, saying, I had to raise up the window, and the glass was falling all over everywhere, and I finally got out of there, and I wandered out past a cornfield, best I can remember, and I run across one of the trainmen lying there. In the aftermath of the tragedy, thousands of people helped in the rescue effort. Today's Labor History in Two brought to you in memory of Carol Hillman, a passionate friend of workers and volunteer of the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Okay, labor history there. Gene Victor Debs, of course, we've done a couple of shows on him. And uh, the American Indian Movement, 1968. This was the response of the Native American uh, communities to activism, to the activism all around. It's part of it. Uh, Native tribes in Oklahoma just won a case with the Supreme Court where uh, it was ruled that, yeah, half of Oklahoma does belong to the four nations, four Native nations. Uh, not going to change much, but it's uh, surprising, seven to two decision. Was it 72? Now I want to say that it was. But uh, one of Donald Trump's appointees, Neil Gorsuch, sided with the uh, four liberal justices to uphold the rights. I mean, uh, it doesn't do much. But it, it says, well, yeah, they belong. But we signed these treaties. There's a connection, too, with Mr. Trump because Mr. Trump is a great admirer of Andrew Jackson, the American president from 1829 to 1837. And it was Jackson who, as, as a U.S. general, carried out a war against the Seminoles where it was accused that uh, smallpox 
blankets were given to the natives in the cold winter. Mr. Jackson was absolutely obdurate about getting rid of them. As president, he the, he proposed to move four tribes west to what was then called Indian Territory, a.k.a. Oklahoma. And uh, the case went to the Supreme Court. The tribe challenged him, and the case lost in the Supreme Court. The government lost the case. That didn't stop Mr. Jackson at all. He sent in the troops that got together all the, na the four native tribes and took them on a long, long walk. You talk about the Bataan Death March. That's what this was. So these four tribes were relocated to Indian territory. And the only reason for that was that nobody wanted the land for anything. Later on, when it was the last land left, it was given away to white, quote-unquote, settlers. And uh, then oil, of course, was discovered in Oklahoma. And the rest is history. We have the example of Tulsa to see what kind of a society grew up there, white society grew up there in Oklahoma. Okay, uh, Radio Labor. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 26, 2020. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, 200,000 seafarers are stuck at sea because of the pandemic. How women workers will be affected by a green tech recovery. The Labor Start report about union events and rapping. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions, saying these ain't the friends to be choosing out for themselves, not for others. This is Radio Labor. Just imagine being on a ship for 15 months and not having seen your wife, husband, children, or families in that time. That is Steve Trousdale talking about the 200,000 seafarers who have been stuck on ships because of the COVID-19 lockdown. Another 200,000 have been left without income because they can't board their ships. Mr. Trousdale is the inspectorate coordinator of the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF represents 20 million workers in almost 700 unions. It has started a campaign called Enough is Enough in support of the seafarers. I asked Mr. Trousdale about the seafarers confined to the ships. On any given month, around 100,000 seafarers have changed over on vessels across the world. And we estimate that the COVID-19 pandemic hit the maritime industry. More than 200,000 seafarers who have completed their contractual obligations are waiting to go home. And of course, that means there are at least 200,000 seafarers waiting to start their tours of duty. The ITS Enough is Enough campaign comes off the back of repeated calls to governments uh, where we've been asking them to ease restrictions and make practical exceptions for seafarers so that they can seek medical attention. 
they're for sure to relax, just even take a walk, uh, and of course go home to their families. Seafarers accepted that they were unable to return home in the beginning in order to minimise the spread of COVID-19. And the ITF, along with our responsible social partners, the Joint Negotiating Group, agreed twice to extend CFAR's contracts to reduce their exposure and in recognition of the challenge that the global pandemic has placed on travel restrictions and the availability of flights. But CFARs have done their bit. They've performed their duties and so now we're saying enough is enough. We have to get the crew changed. So we've taken a stand that if any seafarer comes to us and asks us to leave their ship, we will do whatever we can to assist them. You know, there's a lot of talk about designating seafarers as key workers, but most governments are only really paying lip service to this term. And while seafarers have been the unseen workforce for since they started, they are now classed very much as second-class citizens. The ITF has said that it and its affiliated unions will help the seafarers exercise their right to stop working, leave the ships, and return home. Are the seafarers being asked to go on strike? Absolutely not. No point have we asked a crew member to strike. This is about seafarers exercising their rights. Once a seafarer's contract has expired and once their ship is safely in port, they have the right not to sign an extension and after that to be repatriated. Of course, there will be instances when a seafarer cannot disembark because of a lack of flight ability or their replacement is not ready to board. But when a seafarer has reached the end of their contract, he or she has the right not to perform any work outside of safety and emergency requirements. Since the launch of the Enough is Enough campaign, we have received some 1,500 emails and hundreds of WhatsApp, Viber and Facebook messages, the overwhelming majority of which are seafarers simply asking to go home. Seafarers are reporting to us that they are suffering from fatigue, depression, and other mental health issues associated with having been on board for 12, 13, 14, or even 15 months in some cases. I mean, just imagine being on a ship for 15 months and not having seen your wife, husband, children, or family then that time. This in itself is inhumane. But then add the fact that they might not have been paid for three, four, five, or more months as well. So there is no money going home to support their families or that they don't have sufficient food and water on board. This is the reality for many seafarers. And so how can anyone object to a seafarer exercising his or her rights? What do you mean they're not being paid? They're on the ships. Are they not deserving of pay? They've got an employment contract and they are entitled to a monthly wage. Unfortunately, uh, this is one of the biggest problems that the ITF and its inspectorate fight. Um, and that is the uh, non-payment of wages, sometimes for two, three, four, five months, but sometimes for even longer than that. Some companies feel that they can neglect their contractual obligations and just withhold seafarers' money. Last year alone, in 2019, the ITF inspector recovered $43 million in owed wages that were not paid to seafarers that they recovered and gave back to the seafarers of the world. Unions around the world are demanding that post-pandemic economic recoveries include decent work for women. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. As the pandemic is forcing countries to address how they will reboot their economies, 
the labor movement is pushing for more emphasis on green, sustainable technologies. As part of this push, Industrial Global Union organized a webinar on green tech, a future worth fighting for. The question of how women workers will be affected was highlighted. The webinar was moderated by Industrial Communications Officer Walton Pantland. He talked to Industrial's Equality Officer, Armel Sebi. Green tech also incorporates Industry 4.0 and the shift from blue-collar to white-collar work. And clearly in the future, we're not going to need as many strong men to pound steel and carry heavy weights because we'll have machines that do that. So I wonder what that means for the gender makeup of our workplaces. Is this an opportunity for more women to get highly skilled, well-paid jobs? Amel, you're our gender coordinator. What do you think? Women benefiting automatically from new technologies in terms of getting highly skilled and well-paid jobs, it's not automatic, actually. Because what we see today, when we look at the presence of women in science, technology, and engineering and mathematics jobs, we usually call them STEM jobs. What we see is that the women's presence is very low. Embedded social and cultural norms and also stereotypes and behavior are barriers for women, are barriers that prevent actually women of joining and staying in these, in these jobs, technological or engineering jobs. So we, we should. phone call about 15 minutes around 11 talk to our correspondent Mr. EJ Coleman This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor What we see is that STEM jobs are very male-dominated, so they feel isolated. There is a, some kind of macho culture in, uh, in these jobs, and uh, so they would face conscious and unconscious sexism on a daily basis, like uh, jokes, behavior, or comments that would uh, undermine, actually, women's work or question their, capacity, their competency and would isolate them and preventing them to evolve in these uh, in these technological and in these in their careers. So, if we really want women to benefit from these green and new technology, trade unions have an important role to play. They should ensure that women would enjoy equality of opportunity and chances, and also equality of treatment in these sectors. Otherwise, the gender gaps that we that I've been mentioning now will just worsen. And the women will be the big losers of these changes that we are now seeing. And uh, they will not have access to decent work. This is Seymour Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour.
Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggle of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a tiny sample of their hard work. Our top story sections included links to the flogging and imprisonment of 42 Iranian workers who demanded their pay, and the West Coast ports shutdown in the United States in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, we had many, many stories about the International Trade Union Confederation's Global Labor Rights Survey. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage are the return of safety walkouts and other protests by healthcare workers as the pandemic hits hard in countries with largely private healthcare systems. An example would be how nurses in El Salvador's nonprofit hospitals were using their break periods to protest the lack of even very basic personal protective equipment. In nearby Nicaragua, doctors who have challenged the government's decision to let the pandemic run its course without intervention have been fired, and despite this, over 700 healthcare workers have signed a petition in an effort to change state policy on COVID 19. In Brazil, school teachers struck rather than return to work as schools reopened after a regular holiday without any regard for student or worker safety. We did have some good COVID-19 news this week as the wage theft scandals in Australia, many of them exposed by the effects of the pandemic, have resulted in one state making it an offense. Globally, from Botswana diamonds to Bangladesh garments, the effects of the COVID-19 crisis are helping unions and their activist allies expose the responsibility of global brands for working conditions at the point of production. An equally common but negative trend associated with the pandemic are the attacks on media workers who have been working at exposing the shortcomings and mistakes of governments and the deliberate ignorance of employers in the face of COVID-19. Dozens have been assaulted, jailed, or murdered in the past few months. Today, stories on our site about journalists being arrested after their work exposed shortcomings in their government's pandemic response come to us from 11 countries. For our Working Women pages, our volunteers found news of huge increases in the number of assaults and verbal abuse incidents involving women retail workers in the United Kingdom as they attempt to enforce physical distancing and mask requirements amongst customers. Union reaction to more examples of gendered violence in the South African school system and how and why nurses are bearing the COVID-19 treatment burden in Lesotho. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Brazilian bank workers, thousands of whom are being sacked despite a promise that the pandemic would not result in any job losses. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Luke Rodriguez with a new solidarity forever. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother Well, let me spit it for you, got something to say It's because of unions, we gotta aid our workday This ain't no commercial break, my friend Unions are the peeps who brought you the weekend Probably never think about it, la di da Unions fought hard for your right to party 
They're out there to ease your tension with decent wages, health care, and pensions. Now it's like unions blame for bad weather. But tell me what's wrong with solidarity forever. I want to shout it on high and get it off my chest. The story here is fighting for those who have less. So when unions are bad guys in the propaganda war, think what they've done, where they stand, who they fight for. The new Solidarity Rap was written by Luke Rodriguez and Michael Roos. It was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity.
Far as Heaven by the Los Lonely Boys. Uh, 
on that prison and different kinds of prisons. Before that, we had Bob Marley. We're going to knock those crazy bald heads out of town. <laughs> what history would have been like if they had, if landing parties were attacked and driven back into the ocean, driven back towards Spain or Italy or wherever they came from, things would have been different. And uh, I want to play one more song before my phone call. Girl, I'm just going to play one more. As soon as this one's done, give me a call. Anyone else who wants to give me a call as well, we're at 415-550-0511. Guantanamera.
Very well. Uh, just a second. Let me sit this phone up. Okay. Can you hear me? Your volume is really low. Volume's really low. Okay. Let me just turn you down. There. How's that? Is that better? That's better. Very good. Okay, now I can hear you too. Thank you for calling. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. Uh, I thought maybe a nice thing uh, to hear from you some comments on uh, opening up the schools. Oh. Uh, yeah, my opinion right now, I'm going to make it short, is it's too soon to uh, send the children back to school. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I feel that, you know, when you're looking at lower-grade students, they're not going to be able to be controlled wearing a mask, uh, keeping their distance, because most of them really don't understand what's going on, I would assume. And uh, my opinion is, let's hold off on sending them back to school. And I, I just wanted to bring that up, and maybe your listeners would like to know what your opinion is and your outlook on, uh, on a topic like that. Okay, well, uh, I was looking at some pretty nasty uh, um, what do I want to say statistics about if kids go back to school, and I just want to see. Of course, I have them now. I can't find them, but this guy was saying that if. Um, the kids go back to school. He was figuring out how many of them would die. And he said, you know, it's not about politics or anything like that. At this point, it's about kids' lives, you know. Um, Dr. Oz famously, a couple months ago, uh, sat on, you know, whatever TV show he was on, talking about... Oh, you know, two or three million people will die. But, uh, you know, maybe we could sustain that. Of course, you know, not talking about himself for sure. <laughs> um, talking about how many people would have to die. I agree with you. I don't see how school can open. Um, and your point is well taken, you know, of... of uh, Little kids, you know, trying to keep little kids from 
from climbing all over each other. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, several teachers who are friends of mine or people that I used to work with are getting prepared uh, to boycott and not, not go back to work. I don't see how long they can manage to do that. You know, they're going to need to uh, have money coming in too. Well, hopefully it will bring attention to the, the seriousness and uh, what possibly could happen under those kind of circumstances will bring more attention to it. I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there that uh, debating heavily on sending their children back to school. And it is something to think about. We're talking about young lives. We're talking about our future. And uh, right now, again, I'm going to stress, I don't think that uh, the school should open. As a parent yourself, you know, uh, how would you look at it? I mean, say you had school-age kids. I'm, I'm thinking back to my own daughter. and I mean, I just don't see any way people can send their kids. Um, Trump and his people are all worried about, you know, government controlling their lives. You know, they don't want to... They don't want to let, you know, anyone tell them they got to wear masks or anything. But yet and still, they're going to turn around and let the government tell them to send their kids when it's when it's not safe, you know? Yeah, well, looking at it uh, from my point of view, uh, everything that we're getting as far as expecting from officials have been confusing and none are, are really in line with each other. And... If we go through the adults going through the problem of this virus, and now you want to uh, put the children up front, neither one of them been successful. Uh, at least that one for adults has not been successful. So how can we be successful in protecting our children in school? Again, the only thing I can say, and I will continue to say it, is not the time to send the children back to school. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with you, and um, it looks like there's going to be a a big clash. I mean, not only are we thinking of I I, I hearken back to uh, California history. There was a time in California history where uh, the whites who had taken over a certain area near Clear Lake demanded that the uh, native tribes send their kids to work for them as servants, basically as slaves. And if, so they, w they would go out on patrols and, and kidnap the kids and bring them back to, uh, to uh, work for them. So, I mean, that's what we're being asked to do. You know, send your kid to work for, basically work for Trump and his people right-wing people who want to open the schools just so they can look good anyway I don't I don't see any uh, any way out of it I don't see how it's ever gonna happen I don't see how what do you think about sports you think that'll happen <laughs> like that you? is something that uh, I put at the risk of the players uh, I don't agree with it to me, everything right now should be shut down. Uh -huh. And 
stress right now. But no, I, I don't think sports should even be, anything shouldn't be, everything now should not be open. Right now, we need to take control of the virus. And the way it's going, as you say, it, it's mostly for our president, for his benefit, at the lives of uh, our citizens. Yeah. Yeah, so he he wants to see everything open up so he can brag and say, you know, the economy's doing great. The economy is doing great. Uh, the the signs of the economy, like the Dow Jones average and all that, because the government is loaning them money at 0% interest to uh, big corporations. And I'm sure yeah. you noticed the big scandal about how that government money is that was supposed to go to uh, small businesses ends up in the pockets of these all people who are already rich. Right. Even uh, my understanding, some even went to his own son-in-law. I think so. so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we're we're in terrible times. You know. Um, it's a time where hopefully this election will see a difference in our country. And that would be one more advice, and hopefully people will listen to, get out there and vote. Make a change. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for calling in. Anything else you, you feel like you got an opinion on you would like to talk about? Oh, no, not at the moment, but I appreciate being able to talk to you. And, uh, again, I enjoy your program, and we'll be always listening. Okay. And have a good one. Protect yourself. Everyone else, wear a mask, stay your distance, and protect yourself. And thanks for having me on. Oh, well, I, I'm going to have you on next week, too, right? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Sounds, you're, you're a regular now. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that sounds great. Hopefully we can um, make some positive changes. Yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe some people listen to our great suggestions and figure out what's going on. Okay, Earl. Good to talk to you. Okay, Mr. B. You have a good day. And again, everyone take care. And I'll send love to everyone in your family and others. Okay. Bye. Okay, and the same to your family, too. Okay, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so that was uh, Earl Coleman, my friend of many years, and... Uh, an observer of the social scene, always uh, with opinions about, you know, what's going on in the world and uh, what it should be. He's been through a lot and he's got a lot of observations that I want to share every week. So let's see now. We were... This thing about school, though, is... Uh, Earl led us into it. But this, you are being asked as a parent. You are being asked. No, you are being ordered. You are being ordered 
to send your child to school. No. What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that, huh? Send your child to school? Of course. Many teachers are fearful and angry over pressure to return, just as many parents are fearful and angry over pressure to return to send their kids. Here's one teacher talking. I'm terrified. My 14-year-old son is terrified. My sister who teaches in another state is terrified. Her children are terrified. Her husband is high risk and terrified. We need to change our priorities from get the kids back in school to keep everyone alive through this. Now, is that going to happen? We'll see. <sighs> it's a choice that very few people have had to make over the years. And it's a crucial one person was figuring out. I'm trying to look for the numbers because I can't find it when I need it. But this person had figured out about how many people would die, how many children would die. Um, how many children we'd have to give up Here's something, as long as we're getting rid of monuments to slave owners, what do you say we start with the electrical, the electoral college? <laughs> start with the electoral college, huh? And a major ruling came down about the electoral college, which said that uh, electors would have to vote for the winners of the election, the popular elections. state. So the I'd say I'm an elector from California. These are people nobody knows about. <laughs> but who control the election. Right? Um, they are bound now and determined by law that they have to vote for the winner of the election in their in their uh, state. Okay. Uh, before this time, they could vote for whoever they wanted. That was kind of a quote-unquote gentleman's agreement that people, that they would do. But in some certain cases, uh, one elector wouldn't vote for some Wallace electors. There were some problems with the Electoral College in the back. Uh, back in 1968. And um, there's another item. Another part of this whole, this whole quote-unquote problem. 
Capitalism is like a dinosaur. You know, it's like walked into a cave now and needs to turn around and walk out. And it can't. It doesn't work unless people go to work. And part of people going to work is having someone to take care of their kids. Okay, here's one on CNBC. Looming evictions may soon make 28 million people homeless in the U.S. By comparison, 10 million people lost their homes in the Great Recession. Here's what we can expect. Emily Benefer began her career representing homeless families in Washington, D.C. Her first case involved a family that had been evicted after complaining to their landlord about holes in the roof. I met them too late. She said I couldn't stop the eviction. They had already been sleeping in the subway and in other people's homes. And you could see the effects it was taking on them. She says, we have never seen this extent of eviction in such a truncated amount of time in our history. We can expect this to increase dramatically in the coming weeks and months, especially as the limited support and intervention measures that are in place start to expire. One of those is just my note. One of those is the uh, enhanced uh, unemployment benefits, where they added 600 bucks a week to your unemployment uh, benefit. That's going to run out at the end of this month. About 10 million people, she says, over a period of years were displaced from their homes following the foreclosure crisis in 2008. We're looking at 20 million to 28 million people in the moment now, between now and September, facing evictions. Check it out. It's on the CNBC. website all right let's see if we can find it I wanted to play a song by a, a teacher a friend of mine I hope um, see if we can find his song so the the question is on you now. Question is on you as a parent. What are you going to do? Probably got to go to work. So you'd probably love to have the schools open up. Okay, so you could go back to work and not worry about things. Anyway, let's listen to Richard Pryor here. Richard Pryor talking about racism. 
Labor and Love Radio coming at you. Listen up to some jazz. Trying to get Richard Pryor on here, talking about capitalism and uh, like he's not playing, huh? Okay, let's get some music on and we'll see what we can do about it. Calle 13 with America.
Here's our Richard Pryor. White America. Um, probably uh, stop some racism. Stop racism? Yeah. I'm probably afraid of that because then people, people don't hate each other. And people start talking to each other, and then they start talking to each other, they find out <clears throat> who's the problem. Which is? Uh, greedy people. Greedy people. I, I have a couple things I want to ask you there. Do you, do you really think that some of the guys that you dealt with at yeah. NBC, no, yeah. no names, right? Because right. there's lawsuits for that, too. That some of these guys really want to promote racism actively, or is it a subconscious? I, I just think it's part of capitalism, is to promote racism. Right, in order to uh, make things work. If you feel better because you're white and you can get a job, uh, you use that. I mean, you know, I would. Absolutely. Say, I'm sorry, Jack, but shit, they say I'm white. I'm gonna use yeah, this. Right. Absolutely. Get this job. I'm hungry. You know. But uh, and that separates people. So they keep people separated, and that keeps them from thinking about the real problem. That's that's as simple as I see it. Probably is not that simple, but. Yeah. All right. You and I are uh, about the same age, right? We're in our mid-30s. How long is it going to take before guys who think like you, and I'll say guys who think like me, people who don't want to have racism in the country, people who don't want to be oppressing any minority, whatever mm -hmm. it is, sexual, whatever minority, really get into positions of power and can change things? You can't get in a position of power, it seems, if you think like that. It seems that the only time you get in a position of power is if you like the people that are in power. To me, I mean, that's the way it goes. I mean, People that get to become executives become like the people that were already executives. I don't know. Maybe they go in with good intentions, but it eats them up. It's like a cesspool. You know, it just gets on you and it starts. The system eating. levels them. Pretty soon, it's Is all gone. Is that what a cesspool sounds like? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that was uh, Richard Pryor talking about. Something that Malcolm X uh, spoke about as well, that racism and capitalism go together. Malcolm X famously said, you can't have racism without capitalism. Capitalism divides people into the workers and the non-workers and promotes conflict among the people who are working. Okay, let's look here. The hidden, the modern world. This is Tom Tomorrow. It's a cartoon. And uh, Mr. Trump's evolving look at uh, coronavirus. Spot the mistakes, it says. We've inserted several deliberate errors throughout the following panel. Can you find them all? February 26th, Mr. Trump assures the nation that his administration has the pandemic under control. February 26th. Because of all we've done, the risk of the American people remains very low. When you have 15 people and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to zero, that's a pretty good job we've done. April 2nd, Trump laments the ineffectiveness of antibiotic treatments. 
Antibiotics used to solve every problem, he said. Now one of the biggest problems the world has is the Germans gotten so brilliant with the antibiotics, the antibiotics can't keep up with it. On the 23rd of April, he said, this is the famous disinfectant speech. I see the disinfectant that knocks it out in a minute. Is there a way we can do something like that? Injunct injection inside or like a cleaning? It would be interesting to check that out. Finally, on June 15th, as nine states report record coronavirus cases, Trump explains the clear downside of widespread testing. If you don't test, you don't have any cases. If we stop testing right now, we'd have the same very few cases. Any. Okay, this cartoon. <laughs> Think about that. Think about how Mr. Trump just days ago stood and, and told the reporter that the coronavirus was going to just disappear. It will be gone. Okay, here's a history now of uh, demands, workers' demands over the years, and the reaction of the ruling class, the white power structure, to their demands. In 1842, if workers can legally strike, no business will be able to survive. 1887, give blacks an entire dollar for a day's labor? Oh, we might as well burn my business to the ground. 1912. Worker deaths are tragic, but anti-sweatshop laws would be the death of industry in America. In other words, keep those kids working. Keep those little kids, five, six, eight, ten-year-olds, working 60 hours a week. 1915. When workers can't be fired for joining a union, how can anyone stay in business? See, unions interrupt that natural flow of money and time and resources from the working class up to the ruling class, the owning class. In 1924, banning child labor would destroy the economy. Right, little Timmy? And, of course, there's a little Timmy who goes, that's right. <clears throat> I've often thought that the whole profitability of using children as labor is flies right in the face of all capitalist theory. It's profitable to put children to work and to squeeze as much labor as you can out of their young lives. The very fact that it's profitable means that the system we're talking about is corrupt. Is corrupt and anti-human. 1938, we can't have a 40-hour week. If we do, there'll be no employers left to hire anyone. 1964. Equal pay for women and Negroes? 
Business can't stay afloat if federal regulations strangle us. <clears throat> 1970, health and safety laws are a formula for massive permanent unemployment. <clears throat> and finally now, if the new labor rights law passes, businesses are doomed. <clears throat> always, always, there's a very good reason. There's always a reason. Okay? The watching a show last night about Confederate statues and Confederate memorials all over the South. There are some here too as well. That first of all they were they are just a recent phenomenon, okay? They're not from the time of the Civil War at all. And second they're not neutral. Someone pointed out that at a slave auction block in, uh, I don't remember which city, Birmingham perhaps, was there so people could remember and how bad it was because it's just like the uh, death camps where people were forced to walk through and see what had happened. Well, the comparison breaks down. The slave auction block is just there with a sign. And it carries a message. No one's against it. No one is saying it's a bad thing. It's just there. And finally, let's see here. We got reasons we don't want unions. Unions just want to line their own pockets, unlike bosses who have only our interests at heart. Other than weekends, lunch breaks, overtime pay, parental leave, pension plans, higher wages, and sick leave, what good have unions ever done? And here's a woman saying, I deserve less pay than men. Here's a guy with a hook and a missing arm. I wouldn't want the company wasting money making my job safer. Speaking objectively, all unions are evil. Evil! Speaking objectively, of course. Here's the saying, I want the right to work. I want the right to be arbitrarily fired. Who cares if unions reduce the pay gap between non-white and white workers? It's wrong that unions spend money influencing Congress. Only businesses should get to do that. Oh, here's a lady saying, one day I'll be rich and I'll be the boss. When that happens, I wouldn't want some union getting in, way, in the way. Anyway, who wants more power at work? <clears throat> Why we don't want a union? Okay, here's... From the beginning of our nation, how the lines were drawn. Various groups have confronted racial discrimination. But what has been central to our nation's history is the enslavement and segregation of black people. African Americans did not simply accept their condition, 
they became leaders of the movement to end slavery and later in the fight against racial segregation. One of the most eloquent voices against slavery was that of David Walker, the son of a slave, but born free, who published a pamphlet, Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, which became widely read. See your declaration, Americans? Do you understand your own language? Hear your language proclaimed to the world July 4th, 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Compare your own language above, extracted from your Declaration of Independence with your cruelties and murders inflicted by your cruel and unmerciful fathers in yourselves, on our fathers, and on us, men who have never given your fathers or you the least provocation. Now, I ask you candidly, was your sufferings under Great Britain one hundredth part as cruel and tyrannical as you have rendered ours under you? African Americans' defiance took many forms in poems, speeches, and letters, and in songs like No More Auction Block. Slaves and ex-slaves challenged the system. J.W. Logan, a former slave, helped organize the Underground Railroad in Syracuse, New York. When he received a letter from his former owner demanding that he return to slavery, Logan wrote this defiant letter in response. Mrs. Sarah Logue, yours of the 20th of February is duly received and I thank you for it. Now you say you have offers to buy me and that you shall sell me if I do not send you $1,000. And in the same breath and almost in the same sentence, you say, you know we raised you as our own children. Woman, did you raise your own children for the market? Did you raise them for the whipping post? And you say I am a thief because I took the old mare along with me. Have you got to learn that I had better right to the old mare, as you call her, than Maniseth Logue had to me? Is it a greater sin for me to steal his horse than it was for him to rob my mother's cradle and steal me? If you or any other speculator on my body and rights wish to know how I regard my rights, they need but come here and lay their hands on me to enslave me. I will not budge, not one hair's breadth. Okay, that'll do it for our show this week. I want to thank you for tuning in. Thanks to Earl for calling in. 
Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Remember, if you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. Never, but never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. Remember, all we have is each other. The way people get through crises like this is by helping each other out, is by kindnesses and favors and compassion. So stay strong this week. Have a good week and good work, the best we can do. Don't agonize. Organize. This is the B signing off. swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Anti-Trump is the antivirus or antibody to the Trump virus. We're a global alliance of humans standing up against the Trump brand. Antitrump.com started four years ago on March 19, 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better world. Nobody thought it was going to be this bad. Most of us probably figured it would just be four more years of the same old... He was a 70-year-old babbling Nimrod. How bad could it really be? Treason is the last of his felonious activities. The Trump brand has hijacked our government and sold Lady Liberty to the mob. We are a leaderless and without the most basic health care systems and community services. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but the Trump brand is the virus. Welcome to the antivirus. Go to antitrump.com and spread the word. Individual politics aren't important. What is important is that we stand together as a unified voice and say enough is enough. That's antitrump.com.
Welcome to Strictly Bad Vibes, your personal complaint department. Um, what, what the hell are we talking about? Um, whiny people and their stupid complaints that we requested they send us. Why do we do this? Why, why are we doing this? <laughs> None of which matters in this equation because it is his choice to carry such horse shit on the fucking train. And he was yelling, he was like, move that bitch, move that bitch, and, uh, and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm just not, I'm not moving it, you know? I've arrived, why should I move? I don't like what work has been giving us at our free lunches. 115-340-1976, and it does not spell anything. 115-340-1976. Go for it. Call in, guys. Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be 
Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead passengers? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> you uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on the podcast by, with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. 5% yeah, right. I'm time. so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, let's watch full-length Oh, wait, let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, uh, see you next month. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs>